don't don't uh, go to any unnecessary lengths. Yeah, we didn't talk about the time. I just told them we, we've typically been doing it on Saturdays. So that should be fine for them, I think. That's yeah, fine. Priorities. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I think I'm gonna try and take Eli Turkey hunting this year. Today's opening day of YouTube. Oh, is it? Mm. I didn't know that. Well, good morning, uh, Theresa Church family, and uh, for those of you who are joining us, we welcome you also. Uh, good Palm Sunday to you. We are moving into uh, Holy Week on the Christian calendar, and so I want to encourage you to begin uh, right right now, today, and for the rest of this week, preparing yourself to move through the celebration of our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, I would encourage you to take advantage of the Holy Week worship guide that I've put together. You can find that on our church website uh, at theresabaptist.com. Uh, um, and if that's not correct, let me, I'm going to start over because I don't think that's the right address. <laughs> Just edit that out. I knew it was .org. Yeah, that's what I was thinking in my mind and it said, I'm like, that's not right. All right, I'm going to start over. Well, a good Lord's Day to you, Theresa Church family. And uh, for those of you who are joining us who are not a part of our church, we welcome you uh, also. Uh, today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, it's the, the time on the Christian calendar when we celebrate the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you to begin uh, right now preparing yourself to celebrate uh, this week as we move through Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, and then as we look forward to Resurrection Sunday next week. I would encourage you uh, to take advantage of the Holy Week worship guide that I have uh, put out for us to use. You can find that on our church website at theresabaptist.org. You can also find it on our church Facebook page. But take that, use that. There's something there for everybody, every member of the family. So take that and use that uh, as you move through this week. This morning, we are going to finish Mark chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to Mark chapter 6. And the main idea that I want us to see this morning from this story is that Jesus' authority over the wind and over the sea, demonstrate that he is in fact God. And because he is God, he is the one we can trust. So let me say that again, that his authority over the wind and the sea demonstrate his identity as God. And because he is God, he is the one that we can trust. 
So if you have your Bibles there, Mark chapter 6, we'll pick up a reading in verse 45. Mark writes, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making painful headway, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the winds ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray together. Lord, as we open your word on this Lord's day, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and open it to our hearts and to our minds. Lord, it is right for us to open your word at any and all times. It's right for us to sit beneath the authoritative instruction of your word. So God, as we open Mark chapter 6 this morning, I pray that you would help us to see uh, the true meaning of what this text is, that you would help us to see that your authority is a clear identification of who you are. You are, you are God and that because you are gone, we can trust you fully. So Lord, help us to understand these things this morning. Help us to see these things clearly. Lord, we pray all of this in your holy name. Amen. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever thought about the difference between knowing someone versus trusting someone? The, dist- the, the, the difference between knowing someone versus trusting someone. Take marriage, for instance. Spouses are supposed to know one another in a way that that no one else in the world does. They should be comfortable with each other. They should know one another. They should trust one another. You see, inside of a wholesome marriage, spouses have learned to expect things of one another. And that's really what we are looking at this morning, the difference between someone who just knows Jesus versus someone who trusts Jesus. We're going to see the disciples confronted with the fact that they simply know Jesus. They're not trusting Jesus. Well, we read the text, and so if you've got your notes there in front of you, let's look at the first point, which is simply, let's look at what happens. And if we're not careful, we'll, get, we'll just focus on the fact that Jesus walks on the water. And that is a spectacular miracle. But it's only one of three miracles that I want us to see in this story. Well, let's, let's just give ourselves some context. We're on the same day that Jesus has fed the, the, the multitudes. When he takes his disciples, they've been on mission, and he wants to take them to rest. And when they get there, there's a multitude, and he ends up multiplying the loaves and the fishes uh, for this great multitude of people. Mark records that there were 5,000 men, which means that if we add in women and children, we're probably looking at a crowd fifteen to 20,000 people. And then on that same day, after they've been fed, 
Mark sends his, or I'm sorry, Jesus sends the disciples away. Well, it's probably around 8 p.m. Once the, once the feeding of the masses wraps up, if we do some math, it's around 8 p.m. And Jesus puts the disciples into the boat. He uses the word immediately in verse 45. Well, Mark doesn't tell us a whole lot about what's going on. You've probably picked up on that. If you've been with us through our study of Mark, Mark doesn't give us near the detail as some of the other gospel accounts do. And here he just says that Jesus puts them in the boat and sends them off, and then Jesus dismisses the crowd. Well, this this account also shows up in Matthew's gospel and also in John's gospel. And in John chapter 6, verse 15, what we read is that while this was going on, the, the crowd being so impressed that Jesus has fed them, try to make him king. They try to to rise up and forcefully make him their king. They want him to rule over them because he's, he's given them food. And so if he can give them food in the wilderness, he can feed them forever. And so they try to make him king. Jesus, not wanting the disciples to get swept up in this hysteria, puts them on a boat and ships them out and onto the sea. He needs to get them out lest they be tempted to join the crowds. And then he himself dismisses the crowd and withdraws up onto a mountain to pray. Now we've seen Jesus do this before back in uh, in chapter 1 when uh, the the growing uh, uh, fame of his ministry, the people want him to come back and continue to heal and to cast out demons, and Jesus withdraws to pray all night here again. These people want to make him their king. And so he knows that that's not God's will. He knows that that's not God's plan. That's not God's mission. And so he withdraws up on the mountain to pray. Well, Mark tells us that the disciples get into the boat and that he sends them to Bethsaida which is a a common town, a well-known town in Galilee, a town that the the disciples have been very familiar with near Capernaum. And it's only about a four-mile boat trip from where they are. Uh, And so it shouldn't have taken very long. A, A good number of the disciples, six perhaps, would have been experienced fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And if we look at the map, based on where they where the feeding took place, compared to where Bethsaida is, it would have been just a short journey up the coastline. So they, wouldn't even, they would not have even gone out into the water. They would have just gone up the coastline. So it shouldn't have taken very long at all. And so Jesus sends them away. He goes up on the mountain to pray. And in verse 47, it says, And when evening came, the disciples had gone, and he was alone. But verse 48 says that, he saw that they were making headway painfully. So after all this has gone on, he's up there praying, and he sees that they're making headway painfully due to the wind. Well, if we flip over to Matthew chapter 14 and verse 24, Matthew tells us that not only were they making painful headway, but they are way out in the middle of the lake now. Mark, again, doesn't tell us all these details, but, but Matthew says they're way out in the middle of the lake, which is of concern, because they're nowhere near where they should be. Remember, they were just going to skirt the coast right up to Bethsaida, but now they're way out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, which is a, a sizable body of water. They're way out in the middle. Matthew says a long way from land. And so things are going wrong. 
You see, Jesus isn't with them. And things are going wrong. Well, here's a miracle number one. We see it in verse 48. It says he saw them. Now keep in mind what's going on. Jesus is up on a mountain. They are in the middle of the lake. But also keep in mind that it's nighttime. What we'll see in just a few moments is that Jesus comes to them in the middle of the night. And so the first miracle that we see is that from however far the distance is there, way out in the lake, Jesus is way up on a mountain. It's dark, and yet he sees them. Jesus sees his disciples. The darkness can't shroud them. The distance can't hide them. The storm can't get in the way because Jesus, who is God, sees his disciples. So a second thing that we need to note and this is the second miracle, is that Jesus is keeping them from getting where they are supposed to go. He's keeping them from getting there. The, the Sea of Galilee was uh, a large body of water, as I've said. And if you remember back to chapter 4 with the storms, we talked about how storms could come up almost out of nowhere on the Sea of Galilee because of the geography of the land. But here it just says there was a strong wind which the disciples would have been familiar with. They would have known how to cope with a strong wind. But here, for some reason, these experienced boatmen can't handle this particular wind. And so what what the text seems to imply is that Jesus is keeping them from getting to where they are trying to go. He is causing that headwind to blow them further and further away from the land. Well, then we come to miracle number three. It tells us that he came to them about the fourth watch of the night, walking on the sea. Now, if you've grown up in church, then you've probably heard this story before. And I want to challenge you to go back and reread those words and to try to read it with fresh eyes and think about just how crazy that sounds. He came to them walking on the sea. On the sea. That's not normal language. The, the, the implication of the language is literally he's walking upon the sea as he would uh, upon a stone. It's bearing him up. He is commanding the water to hold him up as he walks on the sea. Now Mark records it's about the fourth watch of the night. And if we look at how the Romans kept time and how they divided up the night watches, this is probably between 3 and 6 a.m. The fourth watch of the night would have been between 3 and 6 a.m. Which means if the disciples got into the boat around 8 p.m., that they've been on the water between 8 and 10 hours. They've been out there fighting this headwind a long, long time. Now, let's just consider what they've been doing. They've been on mission. They've come back, and Jesus says, you need to rest. But they can't rest because they have this massive crowd, and then they are active feeding these thousands upon thousands of people all day. And now they've been fighting a wind on the water for 8 to 10 hours. They are no doubt physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted. Well, look at what Mark says. He says, he came to them walking on the water and he meant to pass them by. 
or he meant to pass by them. That's a strange thing for Mark to write. Why would Jesus walk by them or why would he, why would he pass by them? Why would he not come to, to help them? Well, I think if we think about it for a moment, it would seem odd for Jesus to come out there and not help them. But if we look at the original language, what, what a better translation would be is not that he meant to pass by them, but he meant to pass closely by them or he meant to come alongside of them. You see, the implication of the story is that Jesus saw them struggling. Jesus came to them in a supernatural way and he came with the intention of helping. So it's not that he meant to pass by them as if he was just going to kind of wave, hey guys, I see you're, you're struggling, good luck. He came to them. He came close to the boat with the intention of getting in the boat. Well, we see the disciples' response. They're terrified. It says they, they cry out, or literally the Greek word is they shriek. They're terrified. They don't, they don't know what to think. You see, in Jewish culture at this time, night ghosts were considered something, uh, were taken seriously, and they were considered something that would bring destruction. And so the disciples, having been raised in a culture, even if they didn't believe in night ghosts, right now they might have believed in it. They're exhausted in every way. They've been on the water for eight to ten hours, and they have never experienced somebody walking on the water. And so they shriek. They cry out. They're terrified. They respond in fear. And what we need to understand here, brothers and sisters, is that they did not expect Jesus. They did not expect him. They weren't looking for him. They weren't hoping for him. And when he comes, they're terrified. Well, Matthew records the portion about Peter walking on the water. This is the the very same story that that happens in Matthew 14, 28 through 32, when Jesus appears. Peter says, Lord, if that's you, command me to come to you on the waves. If we flipped over and read, then we would know that Peter does get out. and Peter does walk on the water for a few moments before he begins to fear and begins to sink. And Jesus saves him. So we could say there's a fourth miracle that occurs in this story. But it's not in Mark. And we need to, you know, there's, there's probably a reason for that. And I think the reason is that Mark is writing based on Peter's testimony. And Peter... I think, doesn't want to draw attention away from Jesus. Peter probably remembers this incident with crystal clarity in his mind. And he remembers, I walked on that water. And he remembers, uh, I took my eyes off of Jesus and I I stopped trusting Jesus. And I remember that I sank and that I was dying. And so not wanting to detract from the sole focus on Jesus, I think Peter just left that portion about himself out but mark tells us that that jesus uh speaks to them in their fear that they're crying out they're terrified they don't know what to think but jesus speaks he says take heart it's me take heart it is i do not be afraid in verse 51 when he got into the boat the wind ceased and they were astounded that word astounded means that they were undone or that they were beside themselves they had, no, they, had, they had no ability to process what was happening because they were exhausted, they were lost, 
They weren't where they were supposed to be. They had just seen Peter step out of the boat and walk on water. They had just seen Jesus come to them walking on the water. They had just seen the wind stilled because Jesus has once again displayed power over the Sea of Galilee. They have no idea how to handle what's happening to them. It's not normal. They weren't expecting it. They have no category to process it. And yet there is Jesus in the boat. And they were astounded. Mark tells us that the disciples did not understand the loaves. And so they grew hard-hearted. See that in verse 52. They were astounded because they did not understand about the loaves. Well, what does hard-hearted mean here? Because that's a strange way to close this story out. That's the last thing he says about this story. They did not understand about the loaves, and they were hard-hearted. Well, hard-hearted means unbelief. We see it first used in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and how the Pharisees are responding to Jesus. They respond in unbelief. They respond in hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness simply means not believing Jesus. It means not trusting him. Now, there are two kinds of hard-heartedness. There is hard-hearted faith, which I think is what we're seeing with the disciples, those who know Jesus, those who follow Jesus, but fail to trust him at times. But then there is hard-hearted unbelief, which we see with the Pharisees. The Pharisees have no intention of, of following Jesus. They have no intention of trusting Jesus. And so their unbelief is a rejection of Christ as Lord. What the disciples are struggling with is hard-hearted faith. And we'll say more about that as it goes on. But I want to say this, their, their, their astoundedness, their, their disbelief, their being beside themselves in this moment is simply because they were not trusting Jesus. They didn't expect him to be there. They weren't looking for him to help. And so when he does, they're astounded. Well, let's ask this question. What's the point of this story inside of Mark's gospel? We've seen what's happened. What's the point that Mark's trying to make inside of his gospel story? Well, he's, he's driving us to see that the disciples knew Jesus. We know that, that they'd been with him, that they'd been sent out by him. They knew him, but they had yet to be affected by him. That is, they did not yet trust him. They knew him. They knew things about him, but they did not yet trust him. What we see is that this miracle is a follow-up to the miracle that's just happened with the loaves and the fishes. This is a follow-up because the miracle with the loaves anticipates what happens on the sea. The miracle with the loaves, which happened earlier in the day, anticipates what's happening to the disciples on the sea. We see this, that there's a problem, that there's a provision, and that there is presence. Jesus had been preparing them earlier in the day. He'd given them a problem. If you remember, the disciples come to Jesus and say, well, how are we going to feed all these people? And Jesus' response was, you give them something to eat. And so he he puts them in a crisis situation. He gives them a problem to handle. 
Well, second thing we see is that Jesus ultimately provides the answer to the problem. He provides a solution to the problem. The disciples are being snarky with Jesus. They're being a a bit disrespectful. Do you expect me to do this, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, bring me what you have. And if you remember the, the way the language reads in that story, they kept coming back and Jesus kept giving them fish and bread to distribute. Well, the third thing is that Jesus provided all of this out of his own presence. That he put them in a problem, he solved the problem, and then he solved it by being present with his disciples. Well, Mark tells us that the disciples failed to understand that situation. They were there, they saw the loaves and the fishes multiplied, they distributed all the fish and all the bread, and yet they failed to understand what it was that had happened. They failed to reason through the situation biblically. They were no doubt astounded that Jesus had multiplied the fish and the loaves. It really was a miracle of creation. Only God can create things. Jesus didn't take those five loaves and two fish and, and somehow, and somehow mold, mold them together and, and out came more. He created a multitude. Dead fish don't make new fish. God In Jesus Christ created all these new fish for people to eat. And yet the disciples fail to make sense of it in their minds. They fail to truly see who it was that multiplied the bread and the fish. So when the situation on the water presents itself, they're terrified. They just seen Jesus act as God. They saw him do something that only God can do. And if somebody does something that only God can do, that person is God which is the whole point of the the loaves and the fish. But they fail to make sense of it. They fail to see. They fail to trust. And so when they're put in a, a, a similar situation, they're terrified because they haven't made sense of things. Because they know Jesus but do not trust Jesus, they are absolutely terrified when Jesus comes. They have no category to understand him being in the boat. When he gets in that boat, they are just undone absolutely. They don't know what to think about it. Well, what we see in Matthew is that the disciples do have a moment of trust at the end of this. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, it tells us that they together confess that truly Jesus is the Son of God. That, that, that this incident in their lives, Jesus walking on the water and coming to them, Jesus, Jesus stealing the storm, that causes something in their minds to click. Oh, this is God. And they worship. Something changes. They had seen him before with the loaves and the fish. But now, something clicks in their mind to where they understand. But why doesn't Mark record this? What tells us in chapter 6, verse 52, Mark says, they didn't understand, but their hearts were hardened. Well, this seems to be a reference to what had happened back with the loaves and the fishes, not what's happening now. If we're not careful, we can read that as, well, Jesus gets in the boat and the disciples kind of cross their arms and their heart hardens right there. But that's not what's happening. 
Mark is describing what led to this point. What led to them being astounded in the boat was the fact that they misunderstood the loaves and the fishes and thus their hearts grew hardened. They acted in unbelief. They didn't trust Jesus. And so when Jesus shows up, they're totally unprepared because they don't expect him. They're like an animal who's an abused animal. That's all the animal's known is abuse. And so when somebody kind comes on the scene, the animal doesn't know how to respond to kindness. The animal doesn't expect kindness. And so it's scared of kindness. In the same way, the disciples don't know what to expect of Jesus because they don't know Jesus yet. They don't trust him yet. Well, I want to spend the rest of our time asking the third question. We've looked at what happened. We looked at what Mark's doing with it in his story, which is driving us to see the disciples are just now starting to get it. The point for us is the same question. Am I trusting Jesus? Do I trust him? And am I trusting him? Let me remind you of the main point for today, which is that Jesus' authority over the wind and the sea demonstrate his authority, his, his identity as God, the one that we can trust. See, Mark is showing us that Jesus is God himself. And that like the disciples, you and I can be slow to understand, you and I can be slow to comprehend, thus you and I can struggle with trust. We can know Jesus, we can know who he is, and yet we can struggle to trust him. We can struggle to trust him in the midst of hardship and trial and suffering. The story drives us to ask the question, am I trusting Jesus? Am I acting on my trust? Well, in this past Wednesday night study on the book of Judges, I explained the difference between belief and faith. I talked about faith is not believing in God. That's, that's, that's religious belief. There's a lot of folks that believe in God or a God or a different God. What we saw in Judges is that the Israelites were very religious. They worshiped all kinds of gods. But they didn't have faith because faith is not believing in God. Biblically, faith is believing God. Let me say that a different way. Faith is trusting God and his word enough to act on his word. There's a lot of people who own a Bible. There's a lot of people who can quote the Bible. There's a lot of people who attend church and who call themselves Christians who don't have faith enough to believe and act on what this word says. You see, if the disciples had understood what had happened with the loaves and the fishes, do you think they would have had any reason to be terrified on the water? If Jesus can control bread and fish, then Jesus can control water. And oh, by the way, they've been with him already when he can control the water. And so their fear, their anxiety was misplaced. It was a lack of faith in God. You see, the disciples are faced with a situation where their trust, or what we see is their lack of trust, must come to the surface. Jesus pushes them into a situation 
where their trust or their lack of trust in this case must come to the surface. What we truly trust becomes clear when a crisis situation confronts us. What we truly trust in becomes clear when we are pushed to the edge like the disciples are. Whether that's a sickness or a diagnosis we weren't prepared for. Sometimes it's uh, the death of a loved one. Sometimes it's the loss of a job. Sometimes it's a global pandemic like COVID-19 that pushes us to the edge. And when we are pushed there, what we truly trust comes to the surface. And so God has given us an opportunity to evaluate ourselves right now with this text. Jesus is inviting us to look inside of ourselves, to, to look inside of how we are responding to this. We need to look and evaluate specifically how we're responding and ask, what are my behaviors? What are my thoughts? What are my, what are my actions What are my attitudes? What are my anxieties? What are all these things revealing about who I trust or what I trust or like the disciples who I'm not trusting? You see, we tend to listen to our fears. When things like this come up, we tend to listen to our fears instead of to our faith. And when our fears have the final word, guess who we start trusting? Ourselves. Like the disciples, their fears had risen and they were now trusting in themselves. They were trying all night to get that boat under their control. They were trying everything that they knew. The last thing in their minds was, how can God help? Because when God showed up, they were totally caught off guard. What are our behaviors? What are our thoughts? What are our attitudes? What are our fears? What are our, what are our anxieties revealing about who or what we are trusting in these moments? Is there unbelief in your life like there is in the disciples? You see, their, their fear and anxiety and their, the fact that they were astounded when Jesus shows up shows that they were acting in unbelief. They weren't trusting Jesus in those moments. If we say to Jesus, yes, but, which a lot of us have gotten good at saying, if we say to Jesus, yes, but, then we are moving into hard-heartedness. We are moving into unbelief. Because faith, again, brothers and sisters, is not just believing in God. It's believing God enough to act on his word, to obey his word. Well, I want to look at the anatomy of unbelief because it's something that we all struggle with. And I want us to know what it is and how it works in our lives so that we can be aware of it. Flip over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Paul's doing something a little different, but it helps us understand how unbelief works. Romans chapter 1, verse 19, we read these words. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
I want to lay this over top of what we were looking at with the disciples because I think it'll help us understand and make sense of it. Romans 1, Paul says that knowledge of God is clear because God has made himself known. He's made himself known in the created world. And in the case of the disciples, they had known Jesus. They had been with him as he'd worked miracles. They'd heard his authoritative teaching. They'd seen him cast out demons. They'd seen him raise the dead, heal the sick, calm the sea, multiply the loaves and the fishes. They knew who he was. Well, secondly, although they knew Jesus, they did not honor him as God. In this story, in the story of Mark 6 with them on the sea, although they knew who he was, they did not honor him as God. Instead, they treated him as a ghost. They were terrified. Their response was fear, not faith. And in not honoring him as God, they became futile in their thinking. Literally, their brains broke. Their minds broke down. In a crisis situation, expecting God to help does not enter their mind at all. And so because of all this, their hearts were darkened. Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts did not trust. They were astounded. They were totally caught off guard when God showed up to help. Well, here's what tends to happen to you and I. When things are going well, we, we tend to trust Jesus. Why not? Things are, things are going well. Things are easy. It's not hard to trust Jesus when bad things aren't happening. But when we face a challenge, when we face a crisis, when things aren't going well, the true nature of our trust is exposed. Because you see, when things are going well, it's, it's easy to confuse knowing Jesus with trusting Jesus. But when a crisis situation comes, only one of these will stand. And if I'm not trusting Jesus, if I, if I only know things about Jesus, then my trust will be in myself. My trust will be in something like money or health or isolation or hiding away like in this instance. But if my trust is in Jesus, then I'm going to know that he is in total control. I don't have to fear anything. You see, the disciples, if their minds had been working correctly, they would have remembered, hey, Jesus has total control over this sea. Let's, where's he at? Let's call upon him. We'd be like Martin Luther. If you remember the quote from last week, we'd say with Luther, if we had faith in Jesus in the midst of this, we would say, God knows where I am. He'll kill me when it's my time. I'll die when it's my time. And not until then. God knows where to find me. But if I am only knowing Jesus and not trusting Jesus, I'm going to be trusting in hiding from this disease. I'm going to be trusting in money. Do I have enough money? Do I have enough supplies? Do I have enough this or that or the other? You see, when we are pushed into a crisis situation, what we trust comes to the surface. Think about the disciples when we meet them. They're fine as long as Jesus is around. They're fine as long as the focus is on Jesus and not on them. But when their faith is put to the test, they flounder every time. In Mark 4, on the storm, they ask Jesus, do you care? Uh, Jesus, do you care about us? Do you care that we're dying? In Mark 6, they totally forget about Jesus. It doesn't even cross their mind that he might be in control. 
We'll see in just a few weeks in Mark chapter 9 when they are faced with an opportunity to act on the power that Jesus has entrusted to them to cast out a demon, they flop then too. The picture of the disciples in Mark's gospel is not overly flattering. But think about who they go on to become. All but one of them go on to become fearless champions of the faith. Most of them will become martyrs for the faith. That means they are put to death because of Jesus Christ. And most of them die boldly because of Jesus Christ. But right now, they're shrieking men in a boat. You see, Mark's helping us to see how the gospel works itself out in us. These men who are scared to death of Jesus because they weren't expecting him become the men who build the church and who die boldly for the gospel. Most of us think that when struggle comes, God is somewhere in it. We think that God will somehow bring a, he'll tie a bow on top of it eventually or, or he'll use it for his good in the long run somehow. We think that he's somewhere in the silver lining of it. But what Mark 6 is driving us to see is that God is not only somewhere in it, God is everywhere in it. And like the disciples, that storm, they didn't just happen upon it. Jesus put them in it. Jesus put them in that boat and sent them out in the sea and caused that wind to keep them from getting where they're going so that he might come to them in their moment of crisis to teach them, you're not trusting me. It's not the first time he's done it. It won't be the last. And for you and I right now, we have no idea what God is doing globally with this COVID-19 disease. But for you and I right now, because of his grace in bringing us to this Bible story right now, he is putting us in a crisis situation and saying, do you see you're struggling with trusting me? So here's what I'm asking. Where are you? Where are you? Are you like the disciples? Lost in panic? Lost in fear? Totally not looking for Jesus? If that's you and you have ears to hear by his grace, then you may be astounded by this Bible story. Not my preaching, not anything about this, but the, the, the truth of the Bible story may be an astounding thing to you. But if you're looking for Jesus, if your faith has risen to the surface, if you are actively trusting him, then you're hearing this as a reminder that he's been there the whole time. Because remember when they were out in the middle of the sea, what was Jesus doing? He was watching them. So let me ask you this. How are you responding to Jesus during this crisis? We're in a crisis. How are you responding to Jesus? Are you trusting him? Are you trusting someone else? Are you trusting something else? Are you trusting in yourself to get yourself through this? Are you trusting in your home to guard you from the, the, from the germs? Are you trusting in fill in the blank? Let me give you our hope. 
because our hope is not in avoiding a disease. Our hope is in an assured salvation. First Corinthians 15, Paul says these words. He says, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I had also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, what this Holy Week should be for us is a reminder that even death, even death itself is no obstacle for our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the power of the gospel, which Paul says in Romans 1 is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. But we are also struggling with fear, and that's, that's a normal thing. It's normal for us to have anxiety because we are humans, because we are sinful. But because Jesus sees us, as he saw the disciples, he speaks to us. And I want, to, I want you to hear what Jesus says about fear. Matthew chapter 10. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who can kill the body but not the soul. You know what COVID-19, the worst thing it can do to us? Kill our bodies. That's it. That's all that it can do has no ability to touch our soul whatsoever. And Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are numbered. For some of us, our face. Even our hairs are numbered. And Jesus says, fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. There's two points I want to make as I close this sermon. Number one, we need to allow, we need to allow our faith to give us a perspective. Our fear is not of a virus. Our fear is not of a, of, a, of a societal collapse. Our fear is not of economic suffering. Our fear, our ultimate fear is of the God who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. And so because if we are in Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel, then we have nothing to fear, brothers and sisters. And if that's where our hearts are founded, if that's where they are built upon, if that's their foundation, then our faith will rise to the top. Our faith will have total control over us in this situation. And we will say, I will act in faith and God knows where to find me. And I will not die until he says it's my time to go. Because he even knows even the most random details about my life. And he orders them all. But if that's not where you are, you'll act in fear. You won't be thinking about God. You won't be thinking about his mission. You won't be thinking about his control. Now listen to the second point that Jesus makes. If we lack fear of the things of the world because God is in control, guess what that does? It frees us up to be on mission with him. 
Because Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father. But whoever denies me, I will also deny. You see, Jesus says our fears have effects on us. And if our fear, if our reverence is of God, then this world can do nothing to me. You see, if this is true, which it is, the world can do nothing to us. So let us rejoice in the unwavering, the unfading hope that we have King Jesus as our Savior. Let us use this time right now to spread the gospel far and wide. That's going to look different than it normally would, no doubt. But we have this hope that Christ Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. So let's not fear something that God has total control over. Let's not let the fear of something that God controls keep us from living in faith in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, it's right for us to hear your word, and I pray that you use this word in our lives. Help us to see, O oh God, that you have authority over all things. Help us to see, O oh Lord, that you put us into crisis situations just so that we might be reminded that you are the one who provides for us, and you never provide for us outside of giving us yourself. Help us to see, O oh God, where we are trusting, what we are trusting. If we are trusting in you, Lord, I pray that we would strengthen, that you would strengthen that faith in our hearts. Lord, if you have revealed something in our hearts that we are trusting in something or someone else that's not you, bring us under conviction and help us to see, help us to respond. Lord, we have nothing in this world to fear because you are in total control of every single thing. As one pastor said, there is not even one molecule that's outside of your control. Help us to be bold. Help us to be courageous. Help us to trust you. Help us to expect you to meet us in these moments. Lord, we love you. And we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.